0: Chapter Two of Armageddon twenty four nineteen AD by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The Forest Gangs. She gave me a brief outline of the very peculiar social and economic system under which her people lived. At least, it seemed very peculiar from my twentieth century viewpoint. I learned with amazement that exactly 492 years had passed over my head as I lay unconscious in the mine. Wilma, for that was her name, did not profess to be a historian, and so could give me only a sketchy outline of the wars that had been fought, and the manner in which such radical changes had come about. It seemed that another war had followed the First World War, in which nearly all the European nations had banded together to break the financial and industrial power of America. They succeeded in their purpose, though they were beaten, for the war was a terrific one, and left America, like themselves, gasping, bleeding, and disorganized, with only the hollow shell of a victory. This opportunity had been seized upon by the Russian Soviets, who had made a coalition with the Chinese to sweep over all Europe and reduce it to a state of chaos. America, industrially geared to world production and the world trade, collapsed economically and there ensued a long period of stagnation and desperate attempts at economic reconstruction. But it was impossible to stave off war with the Mongolians, who by now had subjugated the Russians and were aiming at world empire. In about 2109, it seems, the conflict was finally precipitated. The Mongolians, with overwhelming fleets of great airships and a science that far outstripped that of crippled America, swept in over the Pacific and Atlantic coasts and down from Canada annihilating American aircraft armies and cities with their terrific disintegrator rays these rays were projected from a machine not unlike a searchlight in appearance the reflector of which however was not material substance but a complicated balance of interacting electronic forces this resulted in a terribly destructive beam under its influence material substance melted into nothingness i e into electronic vibrations it destroyed all the known substances from air to the most dense metal and stone. They settled down to the establishment of what had become known as the Han Dynasty in America, as a sort of province in their world empire. Those were terrible days for the Americans. They were hunted like wild beasts. Only those survived who finally found refuge in mountains, canyons, and forests. Government was at an end among them. Anarchy prevailed for several generations. Most would have been eager to submit to the Hans, even if it meant slavery, but the Hans did not want them, for they themselves had marvelous machinery and scientific process by which all difficult labor was accomplished. Ultimately, they stopped their active search for and annihilation of the widely scattered groups of now-savage Americans. So long as they remained hidden in their forests, and did not venture near the great cities the Hans had built, little attention was paid to them. Then began the building of the new American civilization families and individuals gathered together in clans or gangs for mutual protection. For nearly a century, they lived a nomadic and primitive life, moving from place to place, in desperate fear of the casual and occasional Han air raids and the terrible disintegrator ray. As the frequency of these raids decreased, they began to stay permanently in given localities, organizing upon lines which in many respects were similar to those of the military households of the Norman feudal barons, except that, instead of gathering together in castles, their defense tactics necessitated a certain scattering of living quarters for families and individuals. They lived virtually in the open air, in the forests, in green tents, resorting to camouflage tactics that would conceal their presence from air observers. They dug underground factories and laboratories that they might better be shielded from the electrical detectors of the Hans. They tapped the radio communication lines of the Hans, with crude instruments at first, better ones later on. They bent every effort toward the redevelopment of science. For many generations, they labored as unseen, unknown scholars of the Hans, picking up their knowledge piecemeal as fast as they were able to. During the earlier part of this period, there were many deadly wars fought between the various gangs, and occasional courageous but childishly futile attacks upon the Hans, followed by terribly punitive raids. But as knowledge progressed, the sense of American brotherhood redeveloped. Reciprocal arrangements were made between the gangs over constantly increasing areas. Trade developed to a certain extent, as between one gang and another. But the interchange of knowledge became more important than that of goods, as skill in the handling of synthetic processes developed. Within the gang, an economy was developed that was a compromise between individual liberty and a military socialism. The right of personal property was limited practically to personal possessions, but private privileges were many and sacredly regarded. Stimulation to achievement lay chiefly in the winning of various kinds of leadership and prerogatives, and only in a very limited degree in the hope of owning anything that might be classified as wealth, and nothing that might be classified as resources. Resources of every description, for military safety and efficiency, belonged as a matter of public interest to the community as a whole. In the meantime, through these many generations, the Hans had developed a luxury economy, and with it the perfection of gilded vice and degradation. The Americans were regarded as wild men of the woods, and since they neither needed nor wanted the woods or the wild men, they treated them as beasts, and were conscious of no human brotherhood with them. As time went on, and synthetic processes of developing foods and materials were further developed less and less ground was needed by the hans for the purposes of agriculture and finally even the working of mines was abandoned when it became cheaper to build up metal from electronic vibrations than to dig them out of the ground the han race devitalized by its vices and luxuries with machinery and scientific processes to satisfy its every want with virtually no necessity of labor began to assume a defensive attitude toward the Americans. And quite naturally, the Americans regarded the Hans with deep, grim hatred, conscious of individual superiority as men, knowing that latterly they were outstripping the Hans in science and civilization, they longed desperately for the day when they would be powerful enough to rise and annihilate the yellow blight that lay over the continent. At the time of my awakening, the gangs were rather loosely organized, but were considering the establishment of a special military force, whose special business it would be to harry the Hans and bring down their airships whenever possible, without causing general alarm among the Mongolians. This force was destined to become the nucleus of the national force, when the day of retribution arrived, but that, however, did not happen for ten years, and is another story. Wilma told me she was a member of the Wyoming gang, which claimed the entire Wyoming Valley as its territory, under the leadership of Boss Hart. Her mother and father were dead, and she was unmarried, so she was not a family member. She lived in a little group of tents known as Camp 17, under a woman, Camp Boss, with seven other girls. Her duties alternated between military or police scouting and factory work. For the two-week period, which would end the next day, she had been on air patrol. This did not mean, as I first imagined, that she was flying— but rather that she was on the lookout for Han ships over this outlying section of the Wyoming territory, and had spent most of her time perched in the treetops scanning the skies. Had she seen one, she would have fired a drop flare, several miles off to one side, which would ignite when it was floating vertically toward the earth, so that the direction or point from which it had been fired might not be guessed by the airship, and bring a blasting play of the disintegrator ray in her vicinity. Other members of her air patrol would send up rockets on seeing hers, until finally a scout equipped with an ultraphone, which unlike the ancient radio, operated on the ultronic ethereal vibrations, would pass the warning simultaneously to the headquarters of the Wyoming gang and other communities within a radius of several hundred miles, not to mention the few American rocket ships that might be in the air, and which instantly would duck to cover either through forest clearings or by flattening down to earth in green fields, where their coloring would probably protect them from observation. The favorite American method of propulsion was known as rocketing. The rocket is what I would describe, from my 20th century comprehension of the matter, as an extremely powerful gas blast atomically produced through the stimulation of chemical action. Scientists of today regard it as a childishly simple reaction, but by that very virtue, most economical and efficient. But tomorrow, she explained, she would go back to work in the cloth plant, where she would take charge of one of the synthetic processes by which these wonderful substitutes for woven fabrics of wool, cotton, and silk are produced. At the end of another two weeks, she would be back on military duty again, perhaps at the same work, or maybe as a contact guard, on duty where the territory of the Wyomings merged with that of the Delawares, or the Susquehannas, or one of the other half-dozen other gangs in that section of the country which I knew as Pennsylvania and New York states. Wilma cleared up for me the mystery of those flying leaps which she and her assailants had made, and explained it in the following manner, how the inertron belt balances weight. Jumpers were in common use at the time I awoke, though they were very costly, and for that time inertron had not been produced in very great quantity. They were very useful in the forest. They were belts strapped high under the arms containing an amount of innertron adjusted to the wearer's weight and purposes. In effect, they made a man weigh as little as he desired, two pounds if he liked. Floaters are a later development of jumpers. Rocket motors encased in innertron blocks and strapped to the back in such a way that the wearer floats when drifting, facing slightly downward. With his motor in operation, he moves like a diver, head foremost, controlling his direction by twisting his body, and by movements of his outstretched arms and legs. Ballast weights locked in the front of the belt adjust weight and lift. Some men prefer a few ounces of weight in floating, using a slight motor thrust to overcome this. Others prefer a buoyance balance of a few ounces. The inadvertent dropping of weight is not a serious matter. The motor thrust always can be used to descend, but as an extra precaution, in case the motor should fail for any reason, there are built into every belt a number of detachable sections one or more of which can be discarded to balance any loss in weight. But who were your assailants, I asked, and why were you attacked? Her assailants, she told me, were members of an outlaw gang, referred to as Bad Bloods, a group which for several generations had been under the domination of conscienceless leaders who tried to advance the interests of their clan by tactics which their neighbors had come to regard as unfair, and who, in consequence, had been virtually boycotted. Their purpose had been to slay her near the Delaware frontier, making it appear that the crime had been committed by Delaware scouts, and thus embroil the Delawares and Wyomings in acts of reprisal against each other, or at least cause suspicions. Fortunately, they had not succeeded in surprising her, and she had been successful in dodging them for some two hours before the shooting began, at the moment when I arrived on the scene. "'But we must not stay here talking,' Wilma concluded. "'I have to take you in.' And besides, I must report this attack right away. I think we had better slip over to the other side of the mountain. Whoever is on that post will have a phone, and I can make a direct report. But you'll have to have a belt. Mine alone won't help us much against our combined weights, and there is little to be gained by jumping heavy. It's almost as bad as walking. After a little search, we found one of the men I had killed, who had floated down among the trees some distance away, and whose belt was not badly damaged. In detaching it from his body, it nearly got away from me, and shot up in the air. Wilma caught it, however, and though it reinforced the lift of her own belt, so that she had to hook her knee around a branch to hold herself down, she saved it. I climbed the tree, and with my weight added to hers, we floated down easily. End of chapter 2